brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In the Transforming Society podcast, we speak to authors and editors about their books in the context of the key social issues of the moment. We get to grips with the story their research tells, with a focus on the specific ways in which it can change society for the better. In this episode, Rebecca Megson-Smith speaks to Anne Oakley about her new book, Forgotten Wives, How Women Get Written Out of History. Anne Oakley is a writer and a sociologist who has authored an impressive body of both novels and non-fiction books in a career spanning five decades. Professor and founder director of the Social Science Research Unit at the UCL Institute of Education, Anne is best known for her work on sex and gender, housework, childbirth, and feminist social science. Her latest book, Forgotten Wives, How Women Get Written Out of History, examines how married women's achievements are actively disremembered. Drawing on archives, biographies, autobiographies, and historical accounts, Anne uses the stories of four women married to well-known men as case studies. Looking at the lives of Mary Booth, Charlotte Shaw, Jeanette Tawney, and Janet Beveridge, Forgotten Wives reveals how modern social policy and thought, usually wholly attributed to their famous husbands, has been shaped by the personal involvement and commitment of these women as they responded to the social challenges of their day. Anne, welcome and thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. I'd like to begin, if I may, with the obvious first question of what the inspiration was behind writing Forgotten Wives, How Women Get Written Out of History. Well, the, this book really emerged from the two previous books I've written, which have been, which looks at the whole history of the beginnings of social science. And that was at the same time that there was the battle for women's rights and the beginnings of um, state managed health and welfare systems in the UK. So I had done quite a lot of research on quite a lot of the people who were involved in these movements. Um, and the last book I published, which was called Women's Peace and Welfare, published by Policy Press in uh, 2018, contains the stories of more than 300 women who were all involved in the beginnings of social science, the beginnings of um, public evidence-based public policy. Um, and many of these women actually received very little attention in any of the social histories or biographies that um, have, had, had been written at that time. And during this research, I became really increasingly aware of the way in which biographers and historians have sidelined, ignored, disremembered uh, the achievements of some of these most of these women. And I decided uh, I wanted a manageable project. It wasn't actually that manageable when it came to it, but I decided to focus down on one particular question, which was the one about how being a wife affects the way in which people's women's lives are remembered and, and written about. Most of this history is uh, follows a sort of great man model. They, they, people write biographies of great men, and in the background there may be a great woman, but she is a wife, so she gets rather little attention. Um, biographers, historians make assumptions about wives that what they did couldn't have been all that important. They don't look at what the wife may actually have done for him or with him. 
they don't look at the question of what he might have been able to do without her contribution. They don't look at the whole enormous issue of the uh, large amounts of domestic labor that wives do to support men and children and homes. And these histories do not look, most of the time, they don't look at what the women themselves did. So I wanted to try and address some of these issues in focusing down on four stories for a forgotten wife. Brilliant. So in many senses then, this is as a result of um, years spent in the archives um, discovering all these all these stories and really wanting to bring them out of the archives and into daylight then? Um, yes, it is. Um, one of the points I would make is that with a, a few exceptions, all I looked at were publicly available archives. This material has been available, was available to other people who have written these stories. Um, and what I was doing was digging into the archives rather more than some people have done. I was looking at diaries, correspondence, unpublished manuscripts, uh, and, and, you know, really reading as widely uh, as I could. Brilliant. And um, so before we look into the fascinating lives of these four women in more detail, I'd really like to talk to you about the notion of wifehood as a social construct with its implications for women, because this seems to be central to the stories you're telling. So I wonder, could you explain what is meant by the ideology of wifehood and why it's so important? Um, the ideology of wifehood is it's actually simple, but it's also complicated. Uh, simply, it's about how women's secondary status has been achieved and constantly confirmed through the institution of marriage as the normative status for adult women. It's often forgotten that the earliest feminist struggles were not about the vote. They weren't about women in Edwardian hats throwing bricks through windows uh, and arguing that women ought to be able to vote. The earliest struggles were about marriage. They were protests about the ways in which women were treated as secondary subjects um, through the institution of marriage. And even in the 1970s, when I joined the women's liberation movement, that was the focus. We had a campaign called Why Be a Wife? And there were badges made that we wore. Um, and so a lot of the arguments were about marriage as, a, as an institution. And the reason for that, well, it's the phrase man and wife. It's never the phrase uh, woman and husband. So man and wife said it all. Uh, and what it says, wifehood is an identity which is defined in law. And it still, even these days, actually says, uh, you know, creates uh, constrictions and differences in the way in which women in marriage are treated compared to men. Mm -hmm. So, you know, wifehood is about the institutionalized inequality, which is at the heart of marriage, and the marriage as an institution is at the heart of patriarchy. I'm afraid we do have to use that word sometimes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely i i think you um you even you talk in the book about this idea that um whether a woman is a wife or not there's a sense that they are always um uh defined by their status of being either a wife in waiting or a wife or if they're a spinster or a divorcee then i suppose effectively a failed wife so that the the description kind of covers all all states of of, of womanhood in that sense yes uh so women were and to some extent still are uh, expected to be wives if they're not wives they might be wives, they ought to be wives, they are treated as wives are treated, that is, they are placed in the background of the men whose achievements get prioritised. So, you know, my argument in the book is that this condition of wifehood is still a, a defining characteristic of, of women's position today. Fascinating, thank you. So um, I wonder if it would be possible for us to now um, turn to each of the, the, the four women that you've looked at. And um, if you would mind calling out the major contributions and impact your research demonstrates they had on the works of their husbands. So um, perhaps if we start with, with Mary Booth as, uh, as the first, first person. Yes, um, of course you're asking me to define the book in four paragraphs, that's four right. Paragraphs, yes. So Mary, Mary Booth <coughs> was, um, she was the, the earliest of my four wives to be born. She was born in 1847 and she married in her mid-20s the ship owner and um, social investigator Charles Booth, who is famous for writing a multi-volume work called Life and Labour of the People in London which was published between 1889 and 1903. And this was the work that really alerted the governing classes of Britain to the extent of poverty and the need for state action. Mary devoted um, 17 years of her life to Charles's poverty research. She steered the work, she wrote some of it, she contributed to the analysis, she oversaw its publication, and she coordinated and managed endless, endless research meetings um, that saw the work um, published and, and having the kind of major impact that it did. At the same time, she gave birth to seven children and she managed Charles Booth's various homes and she looked after him. And she was independently involved in social reform, particularly in the area in Leicestershire where they had one of their houses. She started community aid and healthcare associations there, uh, and she is still remembered for that today. She was also a writer, and some of her writings survive in the Booth archives. But her diaries, which I read, record that she burnt some of her papers including a novel <laughs> come back to that later. yes absolutely absolutely fascinating um there was a really i thought there was a really interesting piece where um 
as you say, she sort of she edited much of the work um, that he did on the conditions of the uh, uh, of the people of London, and um, and I think it, there's a comment at one time where she sort of rewrites whole chunks because otherwise it wouldn't be very interesting and it wouldn't have been anywhere near as readable. So you know, it's really quite an important role that she's that she's playing in in, in the editing uh, side of the process of his work, isn't it? Yes, she made it readable. Um, she thought about the audience. And there were quite a, a dozen or so, or more than that, other people who helped Charles Booth, and they wrote parts of these books. And she worked with them, also edited what they had written, and you know tried to persuade them to write in, in a more accessible way, and, and a way that would, would have an impact. But so what, you know, what she did was incredibly important. She, she was also very important in terms of the social network that she helped him access, which I think is very similar to the next wife, Charlotte Shaw, um, and what she did for, for George Bernard Shaw. But perhaps you could you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, just to finish on, on Mary Booth, she was the daughter of Zachary McCauley, who was a statistician and an anti-slavery agitator. And probably Mary uh, learned a lot about statistical methods from her father which she imparted to Charles Booth. And um, uh, so the social networks, this was an important part of Mary's contribution. And similarly with Charlotte Shaw, who uh, is famous for marrying George Bernard Shaw in 1898, when she was 41. Uh, he was not well known at the time. He didn't have any money. Um, he moved into her flat which was above the earliest uh, rooms of the London School of Economics, um, which had just been founded. And that Charlotte Shaw was uh, found a member of the London School of Economics. So usually you find that role is uh, credited to her husband, uh, along with other things that are credited to him. Um, she did uh, for him. Um, a lot of work suggesting ideas for plays, arranging performances, suggesting actors, uh, and of course she looked after <laughs> she looked after him, as they all did very well. But apart from that, Charlotte Shaw also uh, set up a program in women's history at the London School of Economics uh, at a time when people weren't doing that. This was in the first, second decade of the 20th century, she sponsored scholarships for women to write about women's history. And apart from that, she was a translator of the work of a radical French uh, dramatist called Eugene Brier, uh, who was the sort of French uh, counterpart of George Bernard Shaw, and she was responsible for getting his works into English and getting them on the stage. And there's another quite um, fascinating bit of Charlotte Shaw's story, which is that she worked with T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, um, and did a lot of editing work on his the very famous Seven Pillars of Wisdom and some of his other works. And there is a correspondence between them, which is um, which is quite extraordinary, and which shows how influential she was. Charlotte didn't 
she didn't want to marry for the longest time, did she? And and she was, as you say, 40 when she did ma- marry and become, mm-hmm. as she was there, then known Mrs. GBS, wasn't she, after that? Um, do you know? Yeah, do you I have think she really, um, she really wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> but, um, you know, her social background, uh, she was, as women in those days often were after her father died she uh, was responsible for her mother looking after her mother traveling with her mother and not really allowed any kind of independent life so um it was it was a struggle it was a struggle for her mm-hmm. okay um and a, a lot was made a lot has been made of the the nature of the relationship between um um, Charlotte and um, George in terms of whether it was a consummated marriage or not that there seems to be a lot of uh, biographical time spent on on worrying about that aspect of um, Charlotte's role as opposed to the the broader help and support and, and work she did in her own right. Yes I find it quite extraordinary the way people have been totally obsessed with did they have sex or not um, it seems to me, I mean, we don't know. <laughs> There's no way that we can we can know. Um, it is obvious that um, George Bernard Shaw, you know, had various liaisons with various famous actresses, and that didn't please Charlotte very much. But they did settle down to um, an, a partnership that worked for both of them. But the, the issue of consummation, yes, I just think it, there is an obsession. There is an obsession in these histories with did these two people have sex? Not what did this woman do for this man? What did she do on her own? Uh, I'm not saying that private lives are not important because actually one of my arguments is that you can't look at the public lives without the private lives. But this fixating on this particular question just seems to me very peculiar. Yeah. On just that one area, yes. Yeah. Okay. okay, and then um, we have uh, next up Janet, uh, uh, sorry, Jeanette uh, Tawney, um, married to Henry Ta- Tawney. Uh, could you talk a little bit about her for us? Please? Yes, um, there was, a, there was a, a, a personal reason for my interest in Jeanette Tawney. My parents, my father taught at LSE and my parents knew Jeanette Tawney and her husband, the socialist historian R.H. Tawney. And I remember as a small child, my mother, well, both my parents, complaining about Jeanette Tawney and about how awful she was as a housekeeper. She didn't look after her husband properly. And I do remember as a child thinking, is, that, is this true? You know, I mean, children yeah. have a sort of naive wisdom. Um, so that was one of the things I wanted to look at, and it, it was clear from uh, reading the correspondence, which is in the um, Women's Library at LSE in the archives, that uh, Chorney, R.H. Chorney, was the chaotic, untidy, unhygienic one, and this made Jeanette very, very unhappy. But, um, so, you know, she is remembered as this um, unhelpful wife of R.H. Chorney. She is not remembered for the fact that she was a historian in her own right. Um, she did important work on the early history of women's occupations. She worked with her husband on some of his 
um, he wrote a, a variety of important books, which basically gave the Labour Party their case for a moral socialism, famous books. Uh, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, Equality, these were the books that I read as a student. She also um, was one of the, Jeanette Tawney was also one of the first women factory inspectors. And she was a writer of autobiography and fiction. Um, and these uh, manuscripts uh, also survive in the archives. But accounts of her life are completely dominated by her being Tawney's wife. She was also the sister of William Beveridge, the architect of the known as the architect of the welfare state. And I even found one historian who got it the wrong way around and said that Jeanette Tawney was William Beveridge's wife and Tawney's sister. And I think that says it all. You can't even, you can't even get the relationship. These women are, they're just, they're just in the back, yes. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So what, one of the things I found really interesting, so um, both uh, Mary Booth and, and Charlotte Shaw were in many senses very, um, you know, they had it very together, they were doing everything they were supposed to from the domestic household point of view, and they were contributing to their husband's work in quite a significant way, and they were doing their own work. Um, Jeanette Tawney seemed, felt actually as reading the book as a bit of almost light relief, she was a very human person who who wasn't um, maintaining this sort of uh, immense high level standard of um, of domestic um, uh, um, activity and she she you know and she was also heavily criticized for her being a person that had an opinion wasn't she so you know but she she, she came across yes, as a very she, she wasn't modest she didn't hide um, behind her husband or behind any bush or she uh, was clear about the kind of person she was. She was uh, known as eccentric. She wore, you know, hats and clothes that people criticised because they were kind of out of line with what the wifely convention was. Um, so she she was very much she was very much a person in her own right, and that also comes out in her correspondence with with Alex Tony. Um, you know, she's saying to him, why do I always have to agree with you? Um, <laughs> can you not learn something from me? I mean, there, there are masses of, of letters uh, like this. So, and I think that because she wasn't behaving in a proper wifely way, um, she gets more flack from the biographers and the historians. But they notice her because she wasn't behaving properly. And they comment on the fact that she wasn't behaving properly. They don't think about, you know, what her achievements actually were. And she's, there's this sort of the criticism of her as a hypochondriac. She, was, she had an, an, an enormous number of um, problems with her health, didn't she? But often that is reinterpreted through a lens of, of, of hypochondria. Yes, she um, is dismissed as a hypochondriac by, by a, a number of biographers. Um, but I found in the archives, uh, which a couple of other people have also found, the medical reports, uh, she was genuinely, seriously ill. 
it was not, <laughs> it was not invented. It was not an excuse for not tidying up the house or whatever. You know, she was quite often in hospital um, and um, having to recuperate from some illness for quite a long time. It was, it was not made up. Um, but you know, the, the, the assumption that wives who are sick are hypochondriacs is another theme that runs through a whole of the social history and biography. Um, yeah, it's it it it's all part of the uh, dismissing women's agency and their authenticity. It's applying assumptions. You know, a wife who isn't doing this must be because she's ill, and if she's ill, she's making it up. Yeah. End of story. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you. And then, last but certainly not least. Um, uh, Janet Beveridge, who was uh, married to William Beveridge, as you say, the um, economist who helped shape the welfare state policies and institutions and is famous for the 1942 Beveridge Report. What can you tell us about Janet? Well, uh, Janet, carrying on from the remarks I made about Jeanette Thorny, um, Janet Beveridge was another woman who was not hesitant about pushing herself forward and stating her opinion. And similarly, I think that has earned her a certain amount of disrespect from um, the people who have written about William Beveridge. She didn't actually marry him until she was 66. She married him two weeks after the publication of the Beveridge report. Um, but they had, she had worked with William Beveridge for a long time. She was married uh, previously to William Beveridge's cousin, a man called David Mayer, and she brought up four children before, um, before the William Beveridge, major William Beveridge episodes. She, um, in the First World War, she worked as a senior civil servant in the Ministry of Food. She also worked with William Beveridge for 18 years, running the London School of Economics. And this is, you keep coming back to LSE, I don't know why. Um, this is a, a, a very, this was a very important uh, stage in the evolution of LSE to the internationally renowned social science institution it is today. In those 18 years, uh, William and Janet together raised a lot of money that endowed LSE, enabled it to expand. And she was certainly extremely in, important in that whole enterprise. Again, she was using her social contacts, her social network to, to further this work. And then when it came to the Beveridge Report, like Mary Booth and the Charles Booth's poverty work, Janet Beveridge took William Beveridge's text and rewrote it and said, you have to write it like this. You have to, you know, you have to make it, uh, you have to make it accessible. You have to make people want to read it. You have to inspire them. You have to write it in such a way that policymakers will eventually, which they did, uh, act on it and actually set up um, many of the recommendations that the report is suggesting. She was a writer too, and she also um, wrote um, a novel, at least one novel, um, which was not published um, because William Beveridge didn't want to 
to publish it. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, she, she, in those 18 years at the LSE, it, it sounds to me as though a lot of what has clouded biographies and uh, um, on um, Janet um, were the, I suppose, the critics that she um, that she had uh, within the members of staff at the LSE over those those years. They didn't like a lot of the, particularly the older professor, male professors of this, that, and the other, didn't like being ordered around by a woman. And she was, he was, William Beveridge was the director, she was the secretary, which was actually a major administrative mm -hmm. position. Um, and it, it is clear that, um, you know, she made, Janet helped William to make a lot of the decisions that were made about the running of LAC. They didn't like her. Um, you know, she was, she is described as domineering, interfering, um, and as really being an impediment to William Beveridge's life. Uh, he, interestingly, was always a very respectful of her work. He always gave her credit for it. He said she was as much the author of the Beveridge Report as he was. But what the biographers do is they call him deluded. They say that he, has, he got this wrong. He was actually taken in by her. Uh, and this is not the truth. The truth is that she was, a, um, you know, a bossy, boring woman that we don't really need to, to pay much attention to. And I, I find, I found the, many of the comments that were made about her quite extraordinarily uh, negative. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are prejudiced, I think. Which, which of the women would you say was most transformed in your understanding and knowledge of them through the research you did? Well, I think I was quite startled by all of them, by what I learned about what they had done both with and for their husbands and on their own account. Uh, and when I said earlier that I wanted something, a manageable project, you know, it turned out to be much less manageable because they did so much. And because all this digging around took uh, such a lot of time. I think with Charlotte Shaw, um, the research that she sponsored on women's history uh, was a revelation to me. The work that she did with the French uh, dramatists and also this extraordinary correspondence uh, that she had with T.E. Lawrence and the work she did with him. Um, the role of Mary Booth in the policy survey, I hadn't understood how quite how major that was. Uh, I think so what most, what, what startled me the most was setting uh, these discoveries about what they had done alongside the ways in which these women are written about in existing histories and biographies. I was quite, quite astonished by the contrast between these two narratives that you get. Um, and that, um, yeah, that, that, that horrified me. <laughs> um, what, what more can I say? Well, I can also, of course, I said it, I think I said it before, the, the, the whole issue of, of domestic labour never, ever gets the right kind of attention. 
So, you know, the question is, what would these men, and indeed many other men, uh, have been able to do if they didn't have wives at home who were managing everything, who were paying? I mean, Mary Booth paid all the bills. Charles Booth didn't do anything, and nothing to do with household finances. You know, she organised these enormous households. Yes, they had servants. She organised servants. She had all these children. Um, you know, uh, she organised his social life, uh, everything. That's what they all did. And Charlotte Shaw, whenever they went, she and George Bernard Shaw went away, she had a piece of paper on which was written down all the things that he wouldn't wouldn't eat. She handed it to waiters and so on. Um, he was a vegetarian at a time when it wasn't normal to be a vegetarian, and she, you know, took care of, uh, of all of that. Um, and I, you know, uh, the, the you find the description of these wives in the existing accounts just completely, uh, endlessly underrate what they did. The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry for George Bernard Shaw describes Charlotte Shaw as his informal nurse. Nurse, that's what she was. And the person who did all his typing, but that isn't true. They had a secretary called Blanche Patch. She wrote an excellent book about her life with the Shaws, which actually shows, A, Charlotte wasn't the secretary, and B, all the things that Charlotte did. That's another issue, the ways in which secretaries did. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting as well, thinking about what these women might have done had they not had they not married, because uh, we've got the wife who was a uh, math, wanted to study maths and physics, I think, at Cambridge, and she didn't because she got married instead. Yes, Janet, that was, yes. That was Janet, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. she married her uh, tutor in Scotland, yeah, and yeah. therefore didn't do her postgraduate work. And and even Charlotte was already doing lots of work, um, already working with the LSE and already, you know, heavily involved in, um, in, in work around the social sciences. She was, and she was also um, doing quite a lot of work with the London School of Medicine for Women. Yes. Um, um, she, uh, Charlotte Shaw was, in, was independently wealthy. She did inherit quite a lot of money, which, of course, was very useful for and she gave a lot of it away and some of it went to the London School of uh, Medicine for Women which she was as a pioneering institution she was very interested in supporting and I think would have liked to have gone to as a student and perhaps that might have happened if she hadn't met uh, George Bernard Shaw um, and then there's a the whole history of you know all these women not well all of them wrote Charlotte Shaw did not, to my knowledge, write a novel, but the others wrote novels and autobiographies, which um, didn't see the light of day. And perhaps if they hadn't been so occupied with being wives, they might have been able to do something with all of that. Did you did you know, or was that something that came up as you were do as you were starting? You know, had you already chosen these four women, and then you discovered that three of them were um were were writers uh, effectively in of their own merit oh no i had no idea when i started no i didn't i didn't realize um that 
there were these um, in Mary Booth burnt hers, but the Jeanette Tawney's manuscripts uh, exist in the archives. Uh, and Christopher Janet Beveridge's writings, but not, um, not the novel semi-autobiography that she was going to write. She was just about to sign a very lucrative American contract for a couple of books um, when she wrote to the publisher and said that her husband didn't want her to publish anything, so she wasn't going to sign the contract. So, um, so that was the end of that. Jeanette Tawney's husband didn't know what she was writing and she didn't want him to know. Um, and that is um, quite sad. The, but the context of this is that it was really quite common for middle-class women uh, at the time who were involved in, in social reform and the beginning of social science to be writing fiction as well as fact. It, it's very common. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, they would write novels about the social topics that they were researching. One of um, Beatrice Webb's cousins, Beatrice Webb was also a cousin of Mary Booth, that was another social contact that was important. But another of Beatrice Webb's cousins, a woman called Margaret Hartner, was a social investigator. Uh, and she also write, wrote a series of novels about poverty, homelessness, unemployment under a male pseudonym. How unusual. Um, so there was, there was a tradition of multifaceted writing, crossing the fact fiction uh, divide in, in a way that, you know, we, we don't think of this as, as normal today. People now either write fiction or they write fact. Um, you can't do both, it seems. But, but interesting also that these women were so heavily involved as, in, as we say, making their husband's work readable and interesting, you know, if yeah. they, that, that skill of being able to, yeah. to write engaging. I don't want to say they mediated between the husbands and the world. They, <laughs> they were the translators of the husband's work and the um, promoters, you know, the public relations people, that's what they Work, yeah. Huge amounts of energy and effort in that, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Is there any reason you chose these four women in particular? Were there other contenders? Um, well, I started out with a much longer list. It could yes. have been, it could have been uh, quite a lot of the um, 300 women who appeared in Women, Peace and Welfare. But I, I focused down on these four because I wanted to partly to tell a story about the beginnings of the welfare state and social science. So this period, you know, the late 19th century, the early 20th century, was when it was all happening. And all of these wives and their husbands were involved in different ways in this. So there were connections uh, and there were, was definitely a story about social networks, which, which is another thing that fascinates me. Mm. So um, that was why there was the there was the personal connection to Jeanette Tawney. Um, yeah, that, that was that came into my mind. Um, but and there was also an issue about you know who has archives <laughs> because an awful lot of people, uh, particularly women, die without leaving much trace of the kinds of 
uh, life and work that, that they live and do. Um, so at least for these women, there was some evidence that I could look at about what the story behind the official story that you read in the biographies and the, and the history. I, I think I think that comes a little bit uh, to my next question, actually, which is obviously the case studies are, are for white privileged women, which is something you reference in the book. And I just I just wanted your thoughts on given their circumstances, what for you makes these stories relevant and necessary to tell in today's society when we're dealing with broader issues of race and gender and class? Well, I would say that no women are privileged in relation to men of their social class. And that is something that cuts across all the different ways in which we think about key issues today. None of the four women in my book had the same educational opportunities as the men. Two of them did go to university. One of them had their university career um, cut short. But um, yes, they were. They were privileged, but they were also, um, I don't want to use the word victim, but they were also defined by the institution of marriage. Um, in a way that all women at the time were, didn't have the same implications for them, perhaps. I mean, they didn't have to go work in a factory to earn money. Um, they didn't have to grapple uh, with poverty. And they, as far as I know, didn't have to grapple with uh, men's violence and issues of that kind. Uh, but they, they were all as wives um, prevented from doing uh, some things that they wanted to do. For example, you know, um, they, they were not allowed uh, professional employment. There was the marriage bar. You couldn't, women, when they got married, had to resign from teaching, uh, civil service, and so on and so forth. And this was the time when... Um, the Married Women's Property Act it had just been passed, I think, when Mary Booth got married. But uh, you know, women, mothers, didn't get the same right to their children as men until 1973. I mean, all of this is, is, is very recent. So, um, as I said at the beginning, uh, I think the condition of wifehood is a, a kind of model paradigm um, defining characteristic of women still. It doesn't affect wives in the same way as it did, but there were still, there were still issues of, of inequality. So, the, you know, the basic argument is that marriage is an equaliser. It, it's an instrument of oppression for all women. Um, and and that, that cuts across. Um, other axes of um, inequality. Thank you. And I, I guess the point that you were making just before that about the idea that, that you know, these there are at least there are archives of these women. So you know, it is a place that you can go and you can reveal a history. And 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 in some senses, despite what might be seen as um, as their level of privilege, still. Um, um, they 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 experienced the the oppression 
of being wives and of being treated as, as second-class citizens in, in that yeah. sense? Their, uh, their archives are all, of course, catalogued under their husband's names. Um, and uh, quite a lot of, uh, Charlotte Shaw, for instance, she kept all uh, T. E. Lawrence's correspondence with her, but he didn't keep her. So you get this, um, in, you know, unequal <laughs> distribution of records. Um, Which is also fascinating, <laughs> given how how valuable her correspondence to him is. Yeah. He repeatedly says that in his letters, doesn't he? Yeah, that, yeah. Know, yeah, How yeah. dependent he is on on her yeah. advice and the things yeah. she says, but yeah. he doesn't keep it. Yeah. Um, no. Um, what was it like, because you were researching and writing this book during the um, coronavirus pandemic lockdown, did, you know, how did that affect your process? How did that affect your work? Well, it affected me hugely because um, lockdown closed the libraries and the archives, um, most of which have still not reopened. So I was about halfway through the plan I had of reading um, more uh, more of the women's archives correspondence and so on and I had to decide whether to try to finish the book with the material I had or whether to wait and I decided um, to go ahead with the material I've got partly because of my own age at 77 you know I don't think I can afford to hang around <laughs> us oldies you know we have to get on with it and do what we want to do so um, that was um, a decision. And the other, of course, the other great loss was the opportunity to be able to talk to other people about the work that I was doing. I mean, yes, you can got Skype and email and Zoom, but it's not the same. It's not the same. And, and you know, I think we're deluding ourselves if we think it is the same. You want, you need to be in a room, you need to see how what you're saying affects the other person, you need to be able to see them to read the meanings of what they're saying. And I missed all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, and the book, I, th I think the book would have been different. Um, it would have been different probably if I'd been having those conversations. But I should also say that I did manage to contact um, some of Mary Booth's relatives. She had an enormous family, so there's an enormous tribe of surviving great-grandchildren. And um, two of her, her great-grandsons in particular have been terribly helpful to me, and I did manage to meet them. She had one surviving granddaughter, um, Fanny Hugel, who was, I, when I, um, I talked to her on the phone, she's blind. <laughs> we managed to have um, a, a, a wonderful um, correspondence with the help of her carer. She, I think she was 94 when I got in touch with her. Wow. And she has these memories of Mary Booth as a child. Um, wow. That was, um, that was absolutely lovely. So I did manage that. Maybe I would have managed more of that if we hadn't been locked down and there had been these restrictions on social contact. But I do think, you know, what has happened to research and scholarship because of the lockdown restrictions doesn't never get any attention. And it, it really, this is quite serious. Yeah, definitely. Okay, thank you, thank you. And 
Uh, and, and finally, um, uh, what, do you, what do you think the implications of this research that you've done are for future scholars? How, how do you think um, you know, their work and the opportunities for their work can be shaped by it? Well, I hope, I hope that it will sensitize people to the need not to make assumptions, mm. to approach um, archive material and stories with an open mind, an open mind, not to make prejudgments about what people particularly wives have done. Um, I, I hope that in future there won't be so much, um, you know, dismissal of wives as unimportant, so much kind of stereotypes, um, views expressed about them. And I just, it, 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 it's also about, you know, don't just read the material that's easily accessible that other people have read, go a bit deeper and, and look for as much as, as you can, because, you know, it will, will surprise you and it will change, it will change the story that you tell. That's the point, it will change the story you tell. This is, none of this is about telling the truth. There's no such thing as the truth. But there is such a thing as trying to be faithful to the, the archival evidence that you find and trying not to let your own presumptions about what people have done actually affect the way in which you construct their lives. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think you make a point about the importance of going back to the archive and not relying on the opinions, because I, I think there's there's one instance where a, a, a bio, something that a biographer has said just then gets repeated and regurgitated without anybody actually going back and checking what actually happened in the according to the archives and the and the, the data available. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you, you have to, and I didn't. You know, I wish I'd been able to to do more, and I think. You know, I've probably not finished with them. Um, I think I've not finished with Mary Booth. <laughs> I want to go back and read um, more of her correspondence as, as soon as I can. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you about Forgotten Wives. Um, and um, yes, we uh, look forward to. Um, whatever happens next in terms of your research and maybe some further research on Mary Booth would be really interesting. Maybe. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to Anne and Rebecca for a fascinating discussion. You can find out more about Anne's book, Forgotten Wives, How Women Get Written Out of History, on the Policy Press website at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.